Welcome to Eat, Sleep, Wine, Repeat, a podcast for all you wine lovers who, if you're like me, just cannot get enough of the good stuff. I'm Yanina Doyle, your host, brand ambassador, wine educator, and sommelier. So stick with me as we dive deeper into this ever-evolving, wonderful world of wine. And wherever you are listening to this, cheers to you. Hello, lovely wine lovers. Welcome back. So today's episode is all about advice from a master sommelier. So I'm talking with Stefan Newman, who is the director of wines at Dinner at Heston Blumenthal's and the Mandarin Oriental, an incredible five-star hotel in London. He's going to tell us all about his journey of master sommelier. Have you ever wondered how you take your master sommelier wine exams? Well, you're going to find out a little bit more about that here. He'll be telling us some fun stories, uh, some little mistakes and some of his favorite experiences whilst being a sommelier. He'll give us a little bit of advice on how to understand a wine list and then he's going to let us know his four wine regions that he believes are up and coming and offer some of the best value wines. So stick with us. So like I always do, I will start with my winery of the week. As my guest is Austrian and he's going to tell us some of his favourite up and coming and bargain wine regions, I thought I would start with a incredibly good value wine from Austria. So I've picked a wine from one of the star winemakers of Austria and this is Marcus Huber. So he started making wines when he was only 23 years old and was even named Wonderkind by the Decanter magazine that translates to prodigy because he has basically brought his whole winery to international acclaim. So the Huber family has been around making wine for over 220 years. So Marcus Huber is the 10th generation but he has done such sensational things. So he focuses on Grunewaldliner and on Riesling and is in the Tricental region. Now when we talk about Grunewaldliner, the kind of star regions that a lot of people have heard about is Wachau, Kremstal and Kamtal. Well Tricental is just east of these three wine regions, is one of the smallest with just over 800 hectares of vines and really this is also one of the youngest wine growing regions in Austria. Now Marcus organically farms and he has vines grown on these unique limestone soils. He has everything from the more standard Grunewaldliners and Rieslings up to the Erstlager, which is the first site. So these are the best vineyard sites that he has. The Terrassen is actually only £12. I found that you can get this from Noble Green Wines if you're in the UK. And then the Erstlagers you can get for £25, £29, depending on which one you want. Now, I decided to actually get the cheapest wine from Marcus Huber that I could find. And that's with the weight supermarkets for people in the UK the master of wine Zinnia Roscom King she has made a special wine with Marcus Huber and it's just over 10 pounds so I decided well let's give it a go and see if it is classic Grunewaldliner flavors okay so on the nose it's really quite fragrant aromatic it's lots of this lovely nice lemon citrus fragrance and kind of like a fruit salad nose it's actually very celery-like. Now, celery can be a note that you will pick up with Grunewaldliner. There are always these kind of green salad kind of flavours, notes, maybe even green beans or lettuce. Lots of kind of mineral, floral, herby notes. Expect that with a Grunewaldliner. And I'm actually getting a touch of white pepper. The white pepper is quite a signature for Grunewaldliner, but it's lovely and fresh. It's light, it's quite zippy, it's green, slightly steely in fact. It's got a very limey palette with a grapefruit kind of acid finish. Um, it's not super complex, but it, at this kind of price point you wouldn't expect that, but very, very fresh, dry and crisp. A really good food wine. If you kind of like Sauvignon Blancs, the steelier types, this is a spicier version of that. If you like, pick Pou de Pinay from the south of France, the kind of green notes, or even Vermentino with that lovely citrus acidity, even Muscadet, these kind of great varieties, then you will like Grunewaldlina. The ripest types will be quite apricotty in fruit, whereas the leaner types will be that lime flavours. Grunewaldlina is divine, really good with Asian food. Obviously, 
lovely with fish. It's great with goat's cheese, cheese with spices and herbs, and of course, lovely green vegetables and asparagus. But enough about food pairings. I'm keen to get across to Stefan. So let's go there now. Thank you so much, Stefan, for joining me. I'm super excited to get really wine geeky with you. So thank you for joining me. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. I'm hoping you're going to entertain me, to be fair, because... I, I hope so, too. <laughs> I'm a little bit nervous. <laughs> uh, well, well, you should be, because there's some very, very high expectations. Uh, so... Yeah. <laughs> As people will already know, you are a fantastic master sommelier. And so I really wanted to touch on kind of your experiences, what you got you into wine, and to let people who are listening know a little bit more about the master sommelier exams. So I'm going to ask you a very standard question here. Okay, so hopefully mm-hmm. you have a good answer. What was the inspirational moment for you? Was it a wine, a place, a person? What took you down the wine path? Well, I think there's never a straightforward answer to this. There's maybe, <laughs> no, there's, it's, it's always, there's always more things than just one to a good mm-hmm. story. So I'm trying to make it interesting for you in the beginning. It was, it was certainly a wine. I mean, there's, there's no doubt okay. about it. First of all, I'm Austrian. I grew up in a wine growing area, which is called Wachau. Okay, yeah. The first thing which really took me by surprise, and it was sort of that moment where I was like, oh, wow stunning stuff it mm-hmm. was actually in 2003 when my dad turned 50 okay. so we drank a riesling from his birth year so from 1953 mm. and i was a tender 19 years old and ah. you just passed the uh, legal drinking age so i mean we opened this 1953 riesling and i had absolutely zero expectation because uh-huh. i never first of all tried something so old yeah 50 years 50 old years old, 50 that's years insane old. the bottle yeah. had no label the cork looked like old. it wasn't even a cork anymore <laughs> yeah, it, exactly. it was it was still quite moldy good and fo- okay it was right. it was proper moldy on top mm-hmm. and i was like hmm, this looks very strange but actually it was kept in the same place for more than 50 years for that's so it was from a winery from the neighboring sort of wine region where i grew up which is called kamtal yeah kamtal is very very well known for uh, reasoning and Gruner Vadlina, slightly different mm-hmm. in terms of the style in Bajau, but a very, very good reputation. And we opened this, and the mold actually, now I know this is actually a very good sign, you know, because the mold essentially acts as a sort of barrier. The mold was growing around the cork, and mm-hmm. it was kept in a perfect wine cellar for, for many, many years, for 50 years, or let's say 49 years. So <laughs> when we opened this, I was like, what? This is pretty much magic stuff. And, you know, wow. there's not many tasting notes I remember, but what I, what I do recall is like, it fascinated me that actually something of that age mm-hmm. is so gracefully aged and is still very very enjoyable so i was like oh God, there's so many layers okay. there's so much to discover so i was like and i was just saying to myself at that time you know what stefan if you could make a living mm-hmm. with uh, with wine or in the world of wine i'd be like yeah money wouldn't really matter so it was that sort of very idealistic approach of saying you found something which you like and if you can make a living with this yeah mm-hmm. why not so yeah. that was sort of the my I could say maybe eureka moment where I was like hmm this is pretty delicious yeah. and of course then growing up in the wine growing area and very wine lucky is very lucky very very lucky and the, one of the best I, I don't want to say best regions of Austria well, but... certainly, certainly extremely well known area absolutely. absolutely I think even even on an, on an international scale people would know a little bit when they mm-hmm. heard about Riesling or Grüner Vadlina they would know about Wachau actually mm-hmm. Wachau uh, last year became a DAC so it's one of the uh, yes sort of that was in the news. I read about that. And for everybody who's listening, there is a transcript here. So all these regions, like Vakao is spelt with a W, everybody. So I'm, you're going to be able to see that when I type up the transcript. So that might be useful if we're going to mention a few Austrian names. So heads up on that. But yeah, carry on, Stefan. But, you know, the I mean, oh, first of all, German is not an easy language either. So it's like, it's very good to have this transcript. It certainly will help. <laughs> So be as complicated as you want now, right? Yeah. Now you know it, it'll all be typed up. But yeah, so you're very lucky. And you not only came from this amazing wine region, but you've worked in some fantastic restaurants. It seems that you only like the Michelin star restaurants. Well, actually, this is this was not something by choice, really. You know, Michelin was not something really so big when I was young. Mm-hmm. And when I came to the UK, certainly it was it was aiming for one specific restaurant at that time. I only had this one in mind, so I applied okay. <laughs> only for this one and nothing else. And it was called Le Manoir Gat Saison, which is in Oxford. Uh, Raymond Blanc is the, the chef. Yes. 
and it's possibly the most classic French cuisine you can imagine mm-hmm. uh, in British homeland. But you know, it was a wonderful experience because uh, at that time actually I was not applying for a sommelier role or in the wine team. I wanted to, but there was no availability. So I actually okay. took a job as a commie waiter or breakfast waiter, okay. which essentially meant, you know, for me, I just wanted to get my foot in the door, mm-hmm. start at this place, and then hopefully... You know, again, a bit of an idealistic, you could maybe even say naive thinking. It's like, ah, maybe I'd be lucky enough to get transferred one day. Maybe. So, maybe. 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 <laughs> I so, think you know, did. I think it worked I, I out think, for you, I didn't think, it? I think it, it worked out well, indeed. <laughs> having, having said that, and that was a great time, you know, because I had to get up at something like four o'clock in the morning to serve Ugh, breakfast. Great. And, you know, what, what, what happened there, I actually sort of, had a, had a few chats with the sommeliers, they had sommeliers, and the, mm-hmm. it really, again, sparked my interest and my love for wine. Mm-hmm. And I didn't stay long in the breakfast team. I, I got my transfer within a couple of months, which was brilliant. It was just before Christmas, so just mm-hmm. in December, which is obviously the best time to start a new job. <laughs> <laughs> when you're literally thrown in the deep end, and as I think oh, yes. we were already talking before I pressed the record button, there's no time for the toilet. You work from noon till close. You don't breathe. It's, it's a funny time, Christmas. You know, it, it yes. really gets, as we said before, it gets the worst and the best out in people. But anyhow, so I found, I found my way there and I spent like two years in Le Manoir, mm-hmm. made some fabulous friends there. Wow. But anyhow, I mean, after that, uh, I took the rather extreme step of going for what is called the Fat Duck, so a restaurant which is yes. in Bray. Mm-hmm. Uh, Heston Blumenthal is the chef. Obviously the very opposite of French cuisine. Heston at that time, and I think still now, has a bit of the reputation of challenging the rule book and <laughs> you know, doing things in, in his way. Mm-hmm. And I mean, the first time I looked through the menu actually at the Fat Duck, I saw there's a mock turtle soup on there. And I was like, what is a mock <laughs> turtle soup? Some of his creations are bizarre. Indeed. But at the same time, what I feel like with Heston, no matter what he puts in front of you there's always this one element uh, this one thing which he focuses on it needs to be tasty it needs to mm-hmm. needs to taste good and mm-hmm. i think this still carries on in, in the way i very rudimentally cook as well at home okay. whatever you do you need to make it taste good mm-hmm. and i think heston was the master of that obviously he chose some I would say pioneering ways of achieving that but mm-hmm. actually that's really inspirational for you as well when you work in in, in a team where your job is to work with wine so it actually challenged you as well and it put you a little bit out of your comfort zone that you had to come up with actually quite an innovative and creative pairing so i mean these were the two extremes and i mean three years there and i had some really fabulous moments so then after the fat duck you have finished and you are still in where it's called Dinner by Heston Blumenthal. So it's mm. an historic inspired restaurant in Knightsbridge, London, within the really wonderful Mandarin Rental uh, Hyde Park. Mm. So fabulous property overlooking the Hyde Park. And yes, it's not a two-star restaurant. The intention in the, world, in the beginning was to have a really relaxed, easy dining environment when they open, no tablecloth, no tasting menu as such, only a la carte, with the exception there's one tasting menu on the chef's table, which is a table as the name suggests, very close to the mm-hmm. within the kitchen. Um, oh, ah, okay. This is not the... I've been in the private room. Do you remember you showed me the private, the private room? room. Yes. That was rather grand. The private dining room is... I mean, uh, a lot of our dishes essentially are inspired by British history. And when you go into the private dining room, it has sort of a medieval feel to it. Yes, uh, it does. I always call it a bit the Game of Thrones room. when you It go totally is, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, it, it looks fabulous. I mean, the, mm-hmm. the, the chairs and the table, they're all mm-hmm. bespoke and the... The table itself was inspired by Arthur's round table, but because mm-hmm. it's a rectangular room, we couldn't really fit a round table in there, so we sort of she squished it, it a bit. Yeah. Squished it a bit just to <laughs> Improvised. fit Improvised. Yes, but you know, there's nothing wrong with some good improvisation. Mm-hmm. But 12 chairs, I mean, gorgeous looking. It's, it's, it's really, I mean, whoever came up with that design and partly uh, been inspired by Alice in Wonderland as well. So some of the chairs, there's uh-huh. an engravement with the Alice in Wonderland characters. So, I mean, it, it's really something quite to look at. And the chef's table, which is just then on the opposite side, closer to the kitchen, this is the only table where we serve essentially a tasting menu. Okay. But the, the main restaurant was always like a la carte. And then we were lucky enough to have particular Hessen. He had a few brilliant ideas with some dishes, which 
since day one, um, the menu and still on there, like the meat fruit, which is a chicken liver parfait uh, encased in a mandarin gel. So it looks like a real mandarin. I've seen people peeling it. Oh it's, no, really? <laughs> yes, looks. I mean, it looks so. It oh, looks silly so them. real. But it's so that realistic. Real. Wow. Okay. And the tipsy cake, I think, is, is a really famous dessert, and I mean, I love it. And it's basically a fresh baked brioche, which is infused with vanilla sauterne. So of course, the wine link there and some brandy. Mm-hmm. So it's cooked in the oven, 190 degrees, 20 minutes, infused with this sort of really luscious sauce. You get this really super fluffy cake, but this is served with a spit roast pineapple on the side. And the spit roast pineapple is like three, three and a half, four hours on the spit roast. Wow. You brush it with apple caramel uh, just to get that crispy. Stop it. So, stop it. Yes, we can't okay. even, stop it. Enough because we can't even go right now. <laughs> well, very soon. Very soon. Very soon. Exactly. There we go. When everyone knows what dessert to get. That's amazing. Oh, but yeah, I mean, this this, this is essentially my, my journey in the UK. And yeah. I mean, in the and what a journey. What a journey has been and I made uh-huh. some, some really good friends along the way and as you've asked in the beginning you know then of course another journey was for me not only to the world of wine but as well uh, to achieve something which is called a master sommelier which I heard is a it's a little bit difficult it takes a few hours of studying yeah. doesn't it it takes a few hours yeah <laughs> <laughs> and certainly I mean there's a reputation about this exam of being notoriously difficult yes and I mean, to break this down a little bit, you know, there's a few, there's a few elements to this. So you, it's an organization which is called the Court of Masters Summary. It all started in Europe. Mm-hmm. Uh, now you've got different chapters around the world, but the heart was always in Europe. Uh, it started in around early 70s. And since then, give or take, I don't know the precise number, but around 270 people have passed. Is that, that it? Is, 270? 270, yeah. Oh, goodness So me. it notoriously makes it look like it's a difficult exam. And yes, it is. But, you know, I always say victory loves preparation. When you go for this exam, you you better be well prepared. So how long did it take you to do this from the start of preparing for those exams to taking them and passing? The easiest way of saying this is actually, it maybe took me my entire life, really, but... Um, you know, there, there's four different levels. So you've got mm-hmm. your introductory, your certified, and your advanced level. Okay, yeah. And I started with the first one in 2010, mm-hmm. and I completed my advanced in uh, 2011. So mm-hmm. that was relatively quickly, you could say. But then the last one, which is called the Master Sommelier exam, took me a little bit longer. So I, first of all, it's quite difficult to get a spot in that exam. So very often you go on a waiting list, and then oh, you? You basically, you're basically invited. So I finished my advances at an 11, then I was one year on a break. So mm-hmm. didn't get a spot. So this was basically 2012 gone. Okay. And then in 13, 14, 15, 16, 17. So it took me five attempts in total. So in okay. 13, I didn't pass anything. In 14, I didn't pass anything. When I say I didn't pass anything, because this exam breaks down in, in three different parts. So it's okay, theory. so what are the... Th- yeah, theory, theory, okay. Theory, so it's like anything between 60 to 100 question in give or take less than an hour. And mm-hmm. it's all oral, so there's no there's no written. So you need okay. to answer that question when they ask you the question. And you can't come back to a question, <laughs> which makes it really, really difficult. Mm. Because I don't know about you, but sometimes you always have the best answers ready, <laughs> like 10 minutes down the line. <laughs> so yeah, it's like, um, that's I think that's one of the... The most challenging things you need yeah. to, your, your memory recall needs to be really good mm-hmm. uh, and that's simply purely you can purely train that but okay. you know you need to have a few goals at it in order to get that right so and of course it's generally not the easiest questions about wine as well so it's not something where you're like oh let's talk so it's like things you either know them or you don't know them yeah and there's not much room really to make that stuff up you know and if you're not <laughs> if you're not quick enough then they'll be like yeah let's just move on and yeah. then you know theory was for me personally the hardest thing because for theory you need time and you need you know patience and you need you need to be as I said you, know, you need to train that muscle of memory recall yeah. really really in, in a good way so theory was the last thing I've passed for example example which was brilliant because that meant i could study five years uh, of my life only about wine fab so now you are exceptionally exceptional not not at all i think <laughs> <laughs> i mean i would say i have no thing about two about wine but god almighty this this journey never stops you always learn something new yeah. i feel like if you have stopped learning then that's that's not the right thing you know you always learn something regardless i think in every job and every everything you do you improve. You never reach that pinnacle where you say, okay, that's it, I'm done. Well, that's Uh, true. 
And then in the wine world, we keep on just getting new wine regions keep cropping up all the time. Absolutely. I mean, <laughs> t- 10 years ago, I mean, I always say this, 10 years ago, Chile and Argentina barely existed in the world mm-hmm. of wine. And now there, mm-hmm. was, there was a few wine regions, a few producers. Yeah. And I mean, now it's a huge player and a very Absolutely. important player. And you're forgetting about Brazil and Uruguay. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, uh, it's insane. Oh, yes. Insane. I mean, Uruguay the last years really came around. I'm uh, loving uh, Uruguay at the moment for their wines. But anyway, that's a whole other story, isn't it? So sorry, we've gone off track. So carry off, on off with track, you. Yeah. <laughs> Coming back. Uh, so then, of course, you've got your tasting exam. So okay. tasting exam essentially means uh, six wines, 25 minutes, and you need to correctly identify as many as you possibly can. Now, are you just supposed to say, right, I think this is a Cabernet Sauvignon, I think this is a 2003, and I think it's from this region, or actually they want you to go further and name, like if, or if we were talking about a Bordeaux, would they want you to say, right, I think this is a Mouton Rothschild? I mean, you know, what, what yeah, are they I expecting? Hope, I would hope one day they will do that. <laughs> That'd be nice, it would wouldn't be amazing, it? <laughs> it would be amazing if they would have the budget to give you Mouton blind. That'd be great, <laughs> wouldn't it? And I think you need to be quite confident in order to call it Mouton. But <laughs> <laughs> Apparently some be. can do it. it Apparently. Could, could no, what you should get is uh, absolutely great variety, country, mm-hmm. uh, sub-region or the region uh, vintage. And of course, you can break it down to a producer level. But I think this becomes so hard. It's just, yeah. I'm not saying it's impossible, but it's very, very difficult, especially for six wines. Okay, so we have theory, we have tasting. Then, of course, practical, which is a fun part. Uh, so basically, you've got four to five different tables with different scenarios. You've got your... For example, blind tasting spirit, your decanting table, open a bottle of sparkling wine or champagne. And essentially is simulating a restaurant environment. Mm-hmm. And of course, there are a few challenges along the way. So it's not like just like open the bottle and here we go. Don't they it's deliberately really... try and make it hard for you? <laughs> I think, no. I think what I've seen so far and what always fascinates me, people always think it's so notoriously difficult, but okay. no one of the examiners is trying to make you fail. Okay. But what you what they want to see is how do you work? Uh, this is a certain difficulty to this, to this exam. And they have a point system. It's about reaching a minimum level of points in order mm-hmm. to pass this now for the ms exam that's 75 percent. so you need to reach 75 percent of the marks in order to pass for all three parts and what makes it quite difficult you need to pass those three parts within three years oh, yeah, so okay. that makes it quite difficult so in my situation i didn't for example pass anything in 13 and 14 at all because in 13 the first time when i went there i had two weeks preparation because oh, there was gosh. a slot be- there was a slot becoming available i okay. took it and I was like, I, I'd just rather be on board and go there. And I felt a bit like a tourist the first year, <laughs> but not not on a joyful holiday. Um, <laughs> but, you know, then, of course, when you don't pass anything, you're always a little bit gutted and you take it very hard on yourself. Yeah. Uh, but as soon as you pass one thing, the clock starts ticking. So, for example, okay. I passed my practical in 15. So I had then two more attempts. So two more years because you only get one attempt mm-hmm. in a year to pass the other two parts. So that makes it, it's a certain time pressure. Yeah. And if you think of it that, you learn an entire year for uh, a tasting which lasts 25 minutes or for a theory <laughs> exam which lasts less than 60 minutes it can put a certain pressure on you <laughs> let's imagine. leave it there yeah. but in all honesty there's so many funny and interesting moments as well i mean funny is like oh we share this one story when i passed in 2017 I was mm-hmm. so happy that I sang in my sort of study room, which of mm-hmm. course I was tidying up at that time until 3 a.m. in the morning. <laughs> and I, I sang so loud that at that time, she was my fiance, she wasn't my wife yet, but I woke up at 3 a.m. and uh-huh. she's like, this is it, you're coming to bed. And I, I was so happy and so full of adrenaline, I, I couldn't sleep. So yeah. I woke up four hours late at 7 a.m. Uh-huh. And she at that time was working for London and Partners, which is the official London marketing agency. Okay. And we had a speedboat experience the next day at 7 a.m. So we were like blasting down um, on River Thames in a uh-huh. speedboat. And I was like, you know what? I was like, life can't get much better than that. I haven't slept much in the last day or so, but I was still mm-hmm. so so happy and so stoked. And I mean, in the end of the day, you know, the journey is as hard as it may seem. Mm-hmm. You know, I think you know, sometimes it's a bit of a longer conversation than, as we have now, but the journey itself, of course, it's hard, but it's as well very, very enjoyable. And yeah. I did tastings at 1.30 in the morning until 2.30, then started for a few hours and went to bed and had my five uh, hours of sleep and then did the whole thing again for, uh-huh. for five days 
So I think, you know, my, my team at that time was so supportive as well. It's incredible. I mean, for example, they pulled in some extra hours. So I could be off the, the week before the exam. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's, an, it's, as I said, the journey itself is, is something which you need to enjoy as much as you can. Absolutely. Otherwise, it becomes overwhelming, right? Now, we know how difficult it was to take the Master Sommelier exams. Let's go back to those funny moments that happened as a sommelier whilst in, was it actually in the Fat Duck? You said that there were some interesting moments. <laughs> yeah, there were definitely some interesting moments. I mean, I think we can fill an entire podcast with just funny things which have happened. Or disasters, I mean, perhaps? Yeah, d- definitely. We, I mean, I've sprayed a lot of champagne over people. So To be honest, that's not really, I quite like being sprayed in champagne. It almost seems yeah, luxurious. It's, it's very good for your skin, apparently. <laughs> Never tried it myself. But... Tell, us, tell us the story. Give us one or two very good sommelier stories. Okay, I, I give you one which one. I thought I will never share, but Ooh. I will. Exclusive. So, exclusive, exclusive release here. So the, <gasps> you know, we we never really talk too much about our celebrity guests, and uh, okay. this mm-hmm. is like this is something which we normally oh, it's just like sort of this unwritten rule. But okay. you know, it's now more than ten years ago, so I think I can I can share a little insight there. So mm-hmm. at that time, we, we had fourteen tables in the duck, and mm-hmm. that was it. So. And suddenly, this one day, we we came back from from our dinner break, which is around five o'clock, and suddenly we had fifteen tables in the restaurant, and we were like, <laughs> "Oh my god!" I, I was like, "I didn't even notice it could fit." You know, I mean, I could <laughs> I, I could walk fifty percent of the time not with with a straight back in the restaurant because, you know, it's it's a, it's it's a very old building, rated. Uh-huh. Uh, I think it's a rated two buildings. So essentially, the ceiling is so low, I need to duck tiny. all the time. Uh-huh. So. Okay, we've got this 15 tables. So I was like, okay, must be someone really important. No? And the booking name, I, I can't recall the booking name, but it was something which seemed quite generic, something like Smith. You know, you'd okay. be like, okay, whatever. Anyhow, so it turns out it was Angelina Jolie and Brad Pitt. Ah. And, and I was like, okay, it's like, I really, really, really want to go there with the champagne trolley. <laughs> because... <laughs> I just, I just want to see them in in, uh-huh. in flesh, you know. So I, I want to there. smell her hair. Uh, no, well, <laughs> maybe not that creepy. <laughs> uh, sorry, I'm not creating a good vibe for you. No, of course, you no, just wanted no. to see them. Okay, yes. So I was like, I was like, I we had this this wonderful trolley which was just big enough to get, to get around the restaurant, and mm-hmm. I remember we had in there Cuvée William Dutz Rosé. 2000 okay, yeah. mm-hmm. so i was like okay went there and i think we had ooh, salon i think 1997 my god mm-hmm. in crazy champagnes by the glass if you think of it and by the glass okay nice. by the glass yeah and salon 1997 i think was 39 pounds you know imagine that 39 mm-hmm. pounds for a glass of salon mm-hmm. anyhow so i rolled over the trolley there and i was like i'm generally not a person who is stuttering but mm-hmm. i saw angelina jolie and I mean, I, I literally couldn't stop. You know, it was, it was. She is Tomb Raider. Yeah, uh, and I was thinking, okay, this is embarrassing. You know, I was like, this, this is just not me. You know, I have this, this, this <laughs> one moment with Angelina Jolie and Brad Pitt, and I'm stuttering. Like, anyhow, so then I decided to look at him instead of mm-hmm. her because I was like, it's like I looked at her and she said, "God, you're a beautiful woman." So I was like, uh, if I keep on stuttering <laughs> like this, it's, it's, it's going to be the longest aperitif all I've ever taken. So I looked at him and I was like. God Almighty, your suit looks very, very good. <laughs> Did you say that to him? Did you no, say that I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> just thought this in my head. So I was like, oh God, he looks very handsome, this guy. Uh-huh. So he was wearing a charcoal suit and uh-huh. I made it a mission at that time. I didn't know the, the color charcoal, would you believe it? So I was like, mm-hmm. I asked someone who's working in the rest, this is a very nice color. It looks like grayish, but that's not quite gray. I said, yeah, this is charcoal. And I was like, ah. Oh. So <laughs> I made it a mission to buy a charcoal suit years Did later. You? So you anyhow, bought a Brad Pitt so suit. Okay. My Brad Pitt suit. And I don't, uh-huh. I, so that's going to be an interesting one. Whenever I will go out to restaurants this year, then people will call me Brad Pitt in a suit. Of but course, a- of course. Of course. Anyhow, <laughs> so it's like I had, had a little chat with them and they were so nice. And I sat down to a very easy to talk to. You always said, never meet your heroes. Mm-hmm. And at that time, you know, she was super big in movies. So was he. And it's like when I met them, I was like, God Almighty, they're the nicest people ever. Oh, and... that's amazing. Everyone go buy their rosé then. They were nice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, and I give you I give you one more disastrous story. This is oh. this is a while further back, and it's something which 
it's partly wine related because I was at that time working in the front of house. It was in a wonderful mm-hmm. restaurant in Austria, which was called Shire Ek Ampogush. So it's Ooh. it's a restaurant which is in the countryside. It's on, okay. um, located on 1,000 meters. At that time, actually, had Michelin stars as well. But then Michelin mm-hmm. withdrew from this area. So they're only rating other bigger cities. So not anymore the countryside. Okay. And it was, I think, a really super, super busy Saturday evening. And mm-hmm. I was, for this one moment, this one week moment I had, I was like, okay, let's Need to help everyone I can. So of course there was <laughs> okay. this headless chicken running around trying to help everyone I can. So I grabbed this one plate and it was a salmon mm-hmm. in some sort of fish sauce. Please don't so, tell me you threw the salmon in someone's face. No, I, I actually okay. um, worse. So I was I was serving the lady, and while mm-hmm. I was serving the lady, I was lifting the other plate which I had, which was the salmon plate, okay. over the gentleman's head. And because oh no, and the sauce? The sauce went all over him. That sounds nice. Was it tasty sauce? Uh, I mean, I, I, I still recall <laughs> his scream. I, I think I will recall <gasps> his scream. Screamed. I mean, now I can laugh about it, but at that time it was like I basically dipped a gentleman or I actually completely spilled that sauce, you could say, over him, you know. It was all over his <laughs> shirt, his suit, his, you know, I mean, I, I left literally no part of his body untouched with oh fish sauce. Oh, my God. So basically, well, you're handy with a bottle of champagne because if we get spilt with champagne we're fine but you should not be trusted to walk to anyone with any food right no i mean i think i've improved in the last oh, years ever so slightly <laughs> okay okay so you might I hope, be I hope okay. so at least but yeah there was there was a kind of a funny moment as well so the owner of the restaurant at that time she said i don't worry too much it's fine so she went upstairs and she brought the the gentleman a freshly ironed shirt from her husband oh, so wow, he had yet okay. in a freshly ironed shirt he was okay and i made it sort of my mission of personally uh-huh. looking after them i believe they left happy but i think you know I, you could ne- um, I mean i've never seen him again which is possibly <laughs> a good thing but <laughs> oh dear yeah. well you live and learn don't you now talking about learning mm-hmm. you have had all this amazing experience as a sommelier so as you know and i know for the average consumer one of the most intimidating things about going to a restaurant is understanding that big book of wines that wine list what is your top tips that you could give to a consumer that doesn't feel very confident with a wine list so they can enjoy it understand it just that little bit more well it's you know there's a few tips i can give so okay. wine list the, the trouble with wine list is very often that you're getting intimidated by the size or there's mm-hmm. so little information written on there that you'd be like oh what i'm gonna mm-hmm. do mm-hmm. or there's something which you just don't understand you never heard about it and Believe it or not, you know, this is no, no matter which title you have, no matter how many exams you've taken, there will be always something in the world of wine you have not heard about. Mm-hmm. And we're all in the same position there. So it's like there's a few different ways to approach it. So generally, my first advice is always when I look at the wine list and you're not choosing a wine too often because maybe your partner is doing it or you feel like, oh, yeah, I let someone else for my friends or I let my mate choose. Then I just say, okay, look at the structure of the list first. Is it organized by country? Is it organized by variety? Or is it organized by a specific style? You know, I take uh, Hakkasan here as an example, which got a few restaurants, mm. and they organize the wine list like sort of in different categories. So, you know, fresh and vibrant, rich and full bodied, and then they list the different wines. So, you basically have not really anything related to a country, but it's organized by style. Now, mm-hmm. for me, this is sort of the, the first thing I would look at. If it's organized by country or by variety, it may be a little bit easier to browse through because you will have an idea sort of which wines you normally like and which wines mm-hmm. you normally would enjoy. And any good wine list will have sort of an, a content as well somewhere. So for me, this is always a good reference point. Look for the content and then sort of narrow it down what you want to drink. Okay. I would always say forget about vintages because if, if you're new mm-hmm. into wine, don't bother don't bother too much about vintages if it's Mm -hmm. such a bad vintage then either it's not produced or people would not put it on the list either because the wine is not good so general Mm -hmm. these days i think wine lists i'm just speaking general about the uk market i think wine lists are quite smartly crafted in that sense that when the wine is on the list it's pretty much ready to drink or it is Mm -hmm. ready to drink and you shouldn't worry much about the vintage and then the other thing is think about what you want to drink so if you say okay you know what i I like i like french wine i think okay so and then said okay i feel like for a light french wine then think in a logical way think about geography will help you you like a light french wine so if you go to the southern part of france where you've got 250 to 300 days of sunshine (laughs) it could 
proved quite challenging to produce a delicate, fragrant, easy mm -hmm. style of red wine. Purely for that reason, the more sun you've got, the higher the natural sugar content in the grape will be, the higher the natural sugar content, the more alcohol you will get during the fermentation. Mm -hmm. So that the wines tend to be a bit richer, more for body in terms of the style. I'm trying to generalize here things and mm -hmm. I hope it yeah, helps. Sure. But um, it's like, okay, you think about a lighter red wine and then you say, okay, I may stick to a cooler area. It's like maybe it could be something from the Loire Valley, could be maybe something from the northern part of Burgundy. Mm -hmm. So think about maybe you've been on a holiday somewhere. You've been on a holiday in Burgundy, you've been on a holiday in, in the Loire, and it's like, okay. And cooler regions will provide general, like, a cooler expression of a wine and as mm -hmm. well a lighter, more approachable, fresher style of a wine with a higher level of acidity than higher level of alcohol. Mm -hmm. Of course, yeah. you, you work in the world of wine and I work in the world of wine. We all know that we can sort of trick a little bit maybe with uh, certain winemaking techniques but that's sort of my general rule of thumb so when yeah. I look at the wine list I always look first how is it organized is it by country is it by variety is it by style and then I think of what I want to drink and then mm -hmm. if you have a little bit of a geographical knowledge this will certainly help and mm -hmm. Of course, if you've been somewhere on holiday and if you can uh, recall, oh, was it a particular hot year? Was it particular warm at that time? Or was it raining a lot? So, I mean, <laughs> like all these little memory things will help you. Mm -hmm. And the other thing I would say is if you can, and that's not all wine, is do that, you know, but okay, you say, okay, I want a, a dry German wine. And you see that, that, that Riesling, which you see there, is 9% in terms of alcohol. Then the chances this wine is dry is quite slim because with 9% mm -hmm. alcohol, there will be... Uh, some sugar remaining from the fermentation so it's not completely fermented through meaning there's a little bit of rs or residual mm -hmm. sugar there so alcohol can be an indicator and give you certain indication as well mm -hmm. yeah and now the most important thing in the end you know we all we all quite tax savvy these days so we all take pictures of things which we like and if you look for a wine list and you're like oh god i have no idea there's always a moment where you can sort of i say don't poke the bear, but give the bear a little, how should I say, you know, a, a little moment. What I want mm -hmm. to say with this, you know, speak to your somebody. If there's anyone who is, must know your somebody, some, some restaurants don't have a somebody, but someone who's looking after the wine and yes. then just be saying, okay, you know what? I recently had this, this, and this. And you can show them a few pictures or you can say, I recently had a smile back from Argentina. It was really good. Is there something similar on the list? And I never get offended if people would give me a budget and saying, you know, what this is a really special occasion for us today our budget is 60 pounds it'd be like mm -hmm. fantastic i see this as a motivation for myself and i think i can speak for a lot of sommeliers here and a lot of people who love wine if you tell me okay i want this this and this i will try my utmost best to get you something which is so good in that price range. I think the times are really over where people will try to rip you off. And I've had this in the past, but mm -hmm. I think I generally strongly believe that these are not the times anymore. Absolutely. And especially in not not let alone fine dining, but if you give people an indication saying, I like this and this, very often they are thrilled that you're honest and very often they will try their utmost best to fulfill your request. So that little bit of open-mindedness uh, mm -hmm. of, of stating what you like and what you don't like, man, that can change the whole sort of dynamic with the service stuff, but it can change mm -hmm. the whole dynamic. I always say you will never regret it because in the end of the day, what you get is actually someone who's putting his effort into making yeah. it for you. I think mm -hmm. that, that helps. You know, so nothing beats a good conversation. Absolutely. And you know what? I will always remember as a sommelier, for me, the price point was the most important thing because mm -hmm. if, you know, I had one wines on my list from 30 pounds all the way up to 3000 plus if mm -hmm. somebody says I want a full-bodied wine I want it to be quite fruity well okay do you want it at the 2000 pound mark or do you want it at the 200 pound <laughs> mark you know if they say to me yeah I just want to spend 40 pounds people should never be embarrassed if they only want to spend a certain amount of money it makes our time much quicker and then like you said you will then see what is the best thing from any other indication that they've given what is the best thing within that price point and they will get something that they really like yeah and I think you know we yeah, if you work in a world of wine if you work in restaurants you know you know your list you know you know when you give me an indication of like something for xyz amount of money full-bodied mm -hmm. and rich suddenly whoosh, from the seven or eight hundred positions you have on that on that wine list 
it becomes 10, 15. The world becomes much, much smaller and your recommendation mm. is actually much more solid. Call me old-fashioned, you know, but I always love the <laughs> conversation <laughs> with with someone and if someone is honest and says, oh, it's our wedding anniversary, we really want to lash out today, but we're not quite sure. And of course, you know, if you, if you spend, for example, oh, I want something for 300 pounds, you want to make sure that you get something very good for free. Oh, sure. Pounds. Yes, absolutely. So talking of wines on a wine list, mm-hmm. people maybe don't want to spend the £300. They want this the best value. Mm-hmm. So what's your best value wine regions or what's an upcoming region? What's something that maybe people might want to look out for on a wine list or in a wine shop? Mm, I would say I, I put four things out there. All four. Okay. Four, yeah. four suggestions. Uh, four. Uh, one, which is proper off the beaten track. So that's Georgia. Ah, okay, tried, Georgia. Uh, I've tried mm-hmm. so many wines recently from Georgia. There was an MW uh, Madeleine Waters. She organized an online masterclass about Georgian wine. Oh, God, there was so much delicious stuff in there. They've okay. got not always varieties which are easy to pronounce, like Saparavi <laughs> is the Georgian Ooh, variety. Yes. It's a red one variety. Big and thick and purple in the glass, yeah. and be prepared to stain your teeth, right? <laughs> oh yes. It's uh, the thing is, you know, it's still so fresh, and it's, it's one of the great. few. It's one yes. of the few varieties in the world, one of the few grape varieties which they call Tanturé. So it's red flesh and red skin. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So if you just squeeze the juice, it's already super colored juice. Then Matsvane, Kisi, Razzitelli. And I said they're not easy to pronounce, but Georgian wine, there's a lot going on. Yeah. And not all of them are made in low intervention, natural or amber, orange style way. So you find an incredible amount of wines which are absolutely delicious, very juicy, very easy drinking. And I think there's some really good value found there as well. Because Georgian wine, I mean, let alone buying it in Georgia, it's really, I'm not sure if I should say cheapest chips, you know. But what makes Georgian wine a little bit more expensive on the export market is purely the ship. And when I say more expensive, mm. you find great Georgian wine for £10. Well, I can say Pheasant's Tears, who are definitely one of the biggest and certainly a high quality producer from Georgia, mm. you can get a lot of their wines in England for around £15, £16 yeah. a bottle I've seen. So they would certainly be one that I would always point people to. Yeah, I mean, for me, the, the one really good example here is like Orgo. It does a white and a red. Okay. It's, it's a, yeah. I'm not sure if I pronounce his name now correctly. It's Gogi Tocitelli. <laughs> it's like it's a it's just call him Gogi. It's like G O G I. Okay, so Gorky. it's a very, very uh-huh. easy. Gogi, great uh-huh. name. But yeah, I think George is for me out there. Then okay. I, I have to, I have of course I have to put something which uh, is very close to my heart, which is Greece. I love Greek wine. Xenomavro, which is the red mm-hmm. one variety, uh, mm-hmm. very widely planted. Ayoritico, which is the most planted red variety. Again, doesn't really roll off the tongue, but they realized this a few years ago, so they, they called it now St. George. But yeah, mm-hmm. Ayoritico, really great stuff. Acertico, of course, for the whites. I and... adore Acertico, the saltiness and mm-hmm. that high acidity. And I feel like there's not really many other varieties or other styles that quite compete it's its own it's its own unique style absolutely yeah. i mean for me asiatic is delicious i mean i have to I have to plug in one thing here i've, I've been recently to greece and i've tried uh, in four days around 400 wines and this was oh, all wow. for this was a, this was hard work i mean in, oh, <laughs> i know when, i actually imagine when, it was when we when we say try we really mean you try and you spit you try and you yeah. spit and it's like and your it's... mouth is just gone by the end of it isn't it and yeah. if you know xenomavro xenomavro has sometimes quite present tannins so it's like sort of a nebbiolo uh, mm-hmm. style of a variety so they're quite full-on and the amount of great xenomavro which we tried was fabulous some really great asiaticals and this was all done for a competition which was called 50 great greek wines okay and what was really good to see is that some of the wines which because we tasted all of them blind so we didn't know mm-hmm. what they were all we knew for example was okay this is a white wine from this variety like from asiatico but they were a mix of mainland asiatico so from mm-hmm. all over the greece to asiaticos from the islands so it was really it was very well curated and we had like 50 wines in the end which got that sort of title 50 great greek wines so people and, can can they google that yes is, absolutely is yeah if you, so if you there's a Greek and W, which initiated that, is called Yanis Karakasis. Ah, yes, Yanis, okay. Mm-hmm. And if you just Google 50 great Greek wines, and I think just the, the first 10 of them, the, the top 10, none mm-hmm. of them is more expensive than 20 pounds. That's amazing. So okay. it's like there's some mm-hmm. there's some really cracking value found there. Okay. If you like Acertigo, I put one bottle here, which I received today for an upcoming tasting. 
It's Ooh. called Daphne. Daphne is actually from Crete. Mm -hmm. and yeah, Daphne, the grape variety, no? Mm -hmm. Daphne, the variety mm -hmm. from Crete. Mm -hmm. And this Lararakis. Your main planted uh, variety on that island on Crete. Yes, uh, it's yeah. quite, I'm not sure if it's the most planted, but yeah, it's definitely on the, on it's the from top. Them. Yeah. yeah. And uh, Lirarakis is the producer. Yeah. Oh, this is okay, yeah. so delicious. I tasted that in 67 Palmao. And one of the one of the Greek sommeliers were like, you've got to try it. It's delicious. Yeah. Carry on. But, <laughs> I mean, as I said, you know, just we, we can fill a podcast just with great value wines. You know? maybe, we're going to have to do it. We are going to have to do another one, aren't we? Uh, sounds like it. Okay, the <laughs> next one, um, Portugal. Next one. Portugal, I think, does so good stuff as well. Okay, if you like, yeah. if you like dry red wines, mm -hmm. Douro, where Porto is produced, they do delicious dry red wines out of Porto varieties. And again, it never breaks the bank, and it's amazing for me to see that because if you go to the Douro, not only it's a beautiful part of the world, but it's really labor intensive. So the majority of the grapes you need to pick by hand. So mm -hmm. somehow, very often, this reflects in the price, but not there. I mean, Duro Red, you, you find great stuff from maybe seven fifty, eight pounds mm. onwards. And of course, you can go higher if you want to price-wise, but really, really good stuff. And as well, Dao, which is just the region uh, close I by. I love Dao. I always, the funny thing is I always think Dao is like Burgundy style, so it's got the little bit more food-friendly and some mm -hmm. elegance. Duro, of course, has that concentration. They do these incredible, beautiful blends. And then you have Alentejo down, and I always say to people, if you want like kind of the more new world style, that big and bold and juicy, I've, Portugal has so much to offer. To offer yeah. Mm. And it's still so good value. I mean, mm -hmm. uh, it, not only in wine lists, but as well in shops. So, uh, I mm. mean, and of course, my last country must be Austria because... Okay, yeah, so, we go. Yeah, what region uh, would you... Re oh, region is difficult, you know. Of course, uh, okay. my heart will always lie with Grün and Riesling. Uh, so that's like <laughs> Bajau, Kamtal, Kremstal, they do really good stuff there. But if you like reds, you know, uh, I point people that discovered this as well recently. I, I point them into the direction of the more eastern part of Austria, Burgenland is a wine growing mm -hmm. area, and there's mm -hmm. one, uh, there's a few wine growing regions there, like for example Leiterberg, which does very good Blaufränkisch, okay. mm -hmm. uh, Leiterberg DSC, which does good Blaufränkisch, and uh, Neusiedlersee DSC. Neusiedlersee is basically the lake which is shared between Austria and, and Hungary. And mm -hmm. around that lake is many vineyards. And it's a surprisingly hot area for Austria. So we get 2,400 yeah. hours of sunshine there. So it's oh, hot. Wow. It's I didn't know warm. That. And Zweigel mm. uh, is the, the main variety. Blauer Zweigel yeah. is the most planted Austrian red variety. And it's style-wise maybe sits in between. If you like Beaujolais, so Camay as a style, but mm -hmm. you like Syrah with that certain peppery element there, but well, it's like it's got these lovely soft tannins, but yet it's mm -hmm. still quite full-bodied and all that big yeah. cherry fruit. It's super velvety always in terms of the style. It's like, I, I mean, I can share this. I chose actually as my wedding wine at Zweigl because I always wanted to have something which is easy drinking, but not not an easy wine, if that makes sense. It mm. should be complex enough to keep you to keep interested. And for me, Zweigl is this quite often because, yeah. as you said so correctly, you know, it's this cherry loaded fruit spectrum but not like sweet cherry you know it's like yeah. it's more mm -hmm. like ripe cherry but it's so soft it's smooth it's a very elegant style and then it's <laughs> look at you getting passionate tannins. it's a really good variety so i mean here we are people i mean this is just like four countries which on top of my head does really really great stuff yeah funny you say about the zweigel la frankish for me I, I actually prefer obviously bigger tannins for people it is more a, a deeper darker fruits than the zweigel but mm. there's some great fantastic versions of Blau Frankish, and so many of Absolutely. them in England. Um, am I pronouncing the region Canuntum? Is that how we pronounce? Canuntum, yes, yeah. Canuntum, because yeah, I always remember one of the first Blau Frankish I had. I think it was Johannes Trappel. Anyway, Trappel, yeah. um, and for fifteen pounds a bottle, something like yeah. that, and it was absolutely delicious. So yeah, go buy I Austria. Mean, <laughs> buy Austrian wine, yes, indeed. I mean, for me, Blau Frankish always has this wonderful savory element there, which is great. Mm -hmm. And again, mm -hmm. and over the last years, what the, what we managed so well is less oak less new oak and just managing these tannins nicely so these are and canuntum itself is a really wonderful part of the world as well it's actually i think it was the first roman settlement north of the danube river ah so, there you go so a history lots fact lots of lots of history there yeah and you still find some some roman building they're not of course anymore intact but you still got some archaeological sites there and as one of the first roman settlements north of the river and beautiful part of the world. Again, it's for Austria. It's quite warm. It's uh, it's mm -hmm. relatively flat there, or some hills, 
and again really good value really good value and it's like an awesome. hour it's less than an hour away from vienna so if you fly to vienna you like you'd be there in 45 minutes in the vineyards you know no excuses there you go people know exactly where to go now um for anybody who has thoroughly enjoyed listening to stefan and i know that you will adan i get really amused listening to your instagram videos <laughs> you they are fantastic i'm incredibly jealous because i like to think that i'm an shall we say quote amusing person but i swear to god when i do wine videos i just can't make them that funny and you are hilarious so thank you so much (laughs) oh no you really are you do make them very unique um stefan certainly has a way so guys go and check out and see if you agree with me so you need to go to stefan's instagram which is stefan the sommelier underscore ms i will of course that will be on the transcript i'll also have that on the show notes there's everything from your cheese special that's awesome to preparing (laughs) for your master sommelier which i think is great and you've got your beautiful wife helping in that and everyone needs to be friends with stefan because he has a champagne and spa sparkling wine episode where he gets out like I actually counted the bottles you got out 13 bottles and two magnums seriously I counted and you were like oh this is just a selection of some of my sparklings in my house and I'd like to talk about it I'm like we need to be best friends with you and we need to come around for dinner because my god the amount of wine you have in your house is spectacular yeah, let's not share my address because I would like to keep them for longer <laughs> <laughs> fair enough fair no, enough no, in all seriousness the most important thing and I think thank you so much for your positive feedback and there's, if there's one thing I always say good wine needs to be shared no one, no one's got anything from it if you keep it for yourself don't no, be selfish true. with wine you need to share it so the next time when we see we need to have a bottle of sparkling wine that's as simple oh, as that that is a deal Stefan I cannot wait I'll, I'll come see you in December okay that sounds like it sounds like a deal absolutely that is and such a plan Stefan you're amazing thank you so much um, and I need to say big big thank you to you as well because I mean oh. uh, you know the reason why I always why I do these Instagram videos if if it can put a laugh on someone's face you know that's really great and if yeah. little comments like these they keep me going <laughs> because I learned from this as well and it's 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 a fun thing to do trying to be of course a little bit educational as well but you're not very like... educational at the same time which yeah. is the perfect balance well certainly for me well thank you ever so much and you know I can't wait for a bottle of champagne and sparkling wine which we're gonna have because we're oh. gonna have more than one not knowing the oh. two of us you are my best friend cannot wait to see you <laughs> so thank you so much and have a lovely evening same to you thank you very thank much you. indeed bye bye So I started with talking about Grüneveld Lina, the main grape variety of Austria, but Stefan already mentioned two of the main red grape varieties. So just quickly to touch on them that little bit more. Zweigel is actually a crossing of two grape varieties, Blaufrankisch, which we already mentioned, that was crossed with Saint-Laurent, which is another grape variety that you should know about from Austria. This is in fact quite a young crossing back in 1922 by Dr. Frederick. Zweigelt. Surprise, surprise. Now, with those much softer tannins and that lovely, vibrant red fruit, remember, this is a great wine that can be chilled down, have it with some fish, great with poultry, and it's an absolutely awesome pairing with barbecue. Now, Braufrankisch, that's probably my favourite red grape variety of Austria. If you're looking at Hungarian wines and you see Kek Frankos, this is the same grape variety. They call it different names. So obviously we're talking Austrian. So Blaufrankisch, this is much more peppery, a little bit bigger and bolder. So one, have anything with pepper sauce, that's going to be very good. It's quite nice with more elegant meats. So slow cooked meats in kind of a red wine sauce would be delicious or kind of your pheasant. It's very good with deer, if you can get your hands on some deer. And a lovely mushroom risotto would be perfect too. So do go and get yourself some great value Austrian wine. And now you have some perfect food pairings to try it with. So I want to finish with a wine quote from Rudolf Steiner, who was Austrian. He was also the founder of the biodynamic approach to agriculture. So anyone who wants to know more about biodynamics, go back to episode 25 if you haven't already listened. Now, he had a very spiritual, scientific approach to vine growing or farming in general. And he has this beautiful little quote and it says, The totality of truth is present in every soul as a seed and can be brought to blossom if the soul devotes itself to the development of that seed. I think that one's quite a nice one. He has some lovely little quotes that are not completely 
directed to wine growing as his whole ethos was very much the energy of the universe so do go and have a little look and read up of Rudolf Steiner so thank you as always for listening in if you're enjoying this podcast you have the option to go across to patreon.com slash eat sleep wine repeat for just a few pounds every month you can listen to exclusive content just for you that support is so gratefully appreciated but if not just liking this podcast sharing it with anyone that you know who loves about wine and of course subscribing massively helps as I always say to make this podcast more discoverable so until the next episode cheers to you